0: What are you doing, a small town after the movie shows? A few powerful companies. Main Street is struggling. Monopolies killed my hometown. Welcome to Monopolies killed my hometown. I'm your host, Andrew Cameron. And in this podcast, I'm exploring how our decision to change our competition laws in the 1980s has led to the rise of monopolies and increased corporate power, as well as the decline of small towns and small businesses. So I'll share my experiences growing up and then moving back to Amherst, Nova Scotia, where I run my business currently. In this podcast, I'm trying to search our Canadian anti-monopoly history to find the solutions we used the last time we fought back against monopolies. Because ultimately, I want our small towns, small businesses, and people to have more control and agency over their own lives and futures. Because when we are governed by corporations headquartered elsewhere, we can lose control and hope. So before we get to today's memo, I have some exciting news to share first. So myself, Robin Shaban, and Keldon Bester have co-founded the Canadian Anti-Monopoly Project, camp, and we are having our launch event on August 11th at 12 noon Eastern time. So this is a free online event you can register for at antimonopoly.ca slash events. And we're excited and honored to be joined by Barry Lynn with the Open Markets Institute and Stacy Mitchell from the Institute of Local Self-Reliance. Both Barry and Stacy are leaders in the anti-monopoly movement in the U.S., and we are excited to hear and learn from them. Myself, Robin, and Keldon will also share our thoughts and plans for the Canadian Anti-Monopoly Project. So again, please join us, register at antimonopoly.ca slash events, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Anyways, I'll put all these links in the show notes. Okay, so today I'm looking at a newer memo. It's just a one-page memo titled, The Efficiencies Exception, Let's Keep It. And this memo was released by the C.D. Howe Competition Policy Council and it was addressed to, quote, Canadians who care about competition policy, end quote. It was released on February 17, 2022. The authors of this memo are Brian Facey, Naveen Jonja, and David Duick. Naveen Jonja could be a familiar name. She was one of the authors of the paper I referenced in Episode 3. All three of these authors are partners in the Competition, Antitrust, and Foreign Investment Group at Blake, Castles, and Graydon LLP. So this law firm represents a lot of large clients who are in the mergers and acquisition space. Okay, so what is this memo all about? It's pretty clear it's about the efficiencies exception or the efficiencies defense. Yeah, but what is that? Well, uh, it's a weird part of our Competition Act that no other country has in their competition laws, right? And normally I'm for Canadians differentiating ourselves and being different and trying new things, but not this one. So the efficiencies defense is section 96 of the Competition Act, and the authors claim this section is used to meet the, quote, efficiency and adaptability of the Canadian economy, which is one of the Competition Act's central purpose. And this section lets the Bureau weigh the positive impacts of a merger. For example, the efficiencies gained by the merging firm versus the potentially negative or anti-competitive effects. And my understanding is this defense is usually used like at the end of the whole process, after they kind of looked at everything else and maybe aren't too keen on the merger, then this defense comes into play. There are a lot of arguments that if the Rogers-Shaw merger is actually approved, it would be done under the efficiencies defense. We'll get to what the efficiencies defense means when it's actually implemented, but first I want everybody to take a guess, when did this provision come into the act? And for everybody out there, I'm gonna give you one guess, because I think you could probably get it. It was implemented in 1986 when we brought in the new Competition Act. So, we didn't have this before. There was a lot of debate leading up to it, but it was only in 1986 where we brought this in. So, what does this defense actually do? Okay, so let's say there's a proposed merger, and the merger could lead to higher prices for consumers, and it will also generate cost savings or quote-unquote efficiencies for the merging company. So, someone... Usually an economist that's hired by the merging company calculates the predicted total cost savings for the company and then calculates the potential lost economic activity in Canada. And this part is, in economics speak, the deadweight loss from this merger. So the merging companies pay expensive economists and expensive lawyers from places like Blake, Castles and Graydon LLP, for example. To compile all the research, compile all the stats, and then make the argument in front of the Competition Bureau or the Competition Tribunal if it goes that way. So one of the arguments for this provision in the Competition Act is it allows Canadian companies to reach a large enough scale to compete internationally. Our domestic economy isn't considered large enough to compete with other international players. So even though the merger could raise prices for all of us... If the cost savings to the company are greater than the expected lost economic activity, the merger should go, because this could let the company get larger so that it could compete internationally. But sometimes this whole thing is easier to understand with a concrete example. This is my very simplified example of deadweight loss. Deadweight loss is a weird concept that, as far as I can tell, can't be seen in real life. But this is my simplified loss. Okay, so I have, a, I have a company that sells fresh cakes. Birthday cakes, Valentine's cakes, cakes for any party, wedding cakes, anything like that, right? And two days ago, I sold 10 cakes. Yesterday, I raised my prices to $15 a cake from $10, and I only sold eight cakes. And then I had to get rid of those other two cakes because nobody wants a day-old cake for anything. So the deadweight loss, or the lost economic activity, is the value of the two cakes that I didn't sell because I raised my prices. Okay, so it's a weird thing. What does that look like in real life? I don't know. And it's also kind of odd because as a business owner, I'd rather sell eight cakes at $15 and get 120 bucks than 10 cakes at $10 for 100 right? So I'm better off as a business owner. Anyways, well, I guess like in this, I suppose this could matter because as a business owner, I could choose in the future not to make those two cakes. So then I'm not buying as much from suppliers. Maybe I don't need as many employees. So it could... It could translate through the economy later on, I suppose, but yeah, it's still kind of a weird concept. But this is also a very simplified example. If you try to figure out the deadweight loss from like the Rogers and Shaw merger, you have to look at a whole lot more factors and things that play into it. And so a lot of the economists have complex calculations and models that they use to make these predictions when they try to estimate what the deadweight loss could be from a merger. So I want to take this example, my cake example, and expand it out to kind of look at, okay, how does this work in a merger? Again, let's say I own the same cake shop. There's one other rival cake shop across the street. We're the only ones in town. In my example, there are also, you can't go buy cake mixes at the store or anything like that. It's store-bought cakes only. Anyways, it's weird. I don't know why, but to make my example work, that's what's got to happen. So each of stores, my store and the cake shop across the street, we each sell 10 cakes a day at $10 but I have enough space in my kitchen, I can make 20 cakes a day. So I decide to buy the other cake shop in town. So I now become the only cake shop and I have complete control over the local cake industry. And I expect once I do this, I can raise my prices because there's nowhere else for people to go for cakes. I can also close the other store to make me a more quote unquote efficient organization. And I'm gonna say that'll save me, I don't know, say 75 bucks a day in expenses. So I buy the other cake shop. Now I'm going to raise my prices. And doing that, I don't think I will sell 20. I'll sell 16. Because we'll figure four people won't want to pay the extra for the cakes. So the deadweight loss in this is the value of those four cakes that I'm not going to sell. So I think four times 15, so 60 bucks. But the efficiencies that I've gained from firing people, closing the shop is $75. $75. So, using the efficiencies defense, me buying that other cake shop is a net gain for the Canadian economy and should be approved. Never mind that cakes now cost more, people lost their jobs, there's now a vacant storefront in the community, there's no more competition in the market, and the major benefit is increased profit margins. For me and my cake shop, the economic model deems that this will be better for the Canadian economy, so it's good to go. And again, this is where things get weird when talking about the efficiencies, defense in mergers, because I talked about this in episode three. The Canadian Competition Bureau is only able to go back and review mergers for one year after that merger is complete, right? And remember, this was reduced from only three years in 2008. So basically, people come in and make this argument that they will gain these efficiencies, but we do not have the ability to go back and check to see if these efficiencies were actually achieved. We have no idea, like my cake example, we have no idea if I actually achieved $75 in cost savings. we never go back to take a look. And so basically using this defense, we take the economists and lawyers, arguments and models to the competition bureau or the competition tribunal as face value. And this is definitely what's gonna happen. We accept that's the case. And then we allow the merger to go through and then that's it. We don't follow up on it to see if this actually happened. And so that part really boggles my mind. So like I said, this is a very simplified example of the efficiencies defense. When you get into, you know, if you're gonna argue this for Roger Shaw, it's much more complex to figure it out and make the argument. But I wanted to lay it out in a very simple argument so you could wrap your mind around it because I wouldn't be surprised if you had the same thought that I did when I first heard about this. My thought was, what? There's no way we would actually make important decisions using a standard like this. We wouldn't actually do this, right? but you can probably see where I'm going with this. I'm sorry to say we have, and more than once. So to get into that, the two big cases in sort of the Efficiencies Defense jurisprudence are Trevita versus the Competition Bureau from 2014 and 2015 and the Superior Propane merger case from 2000. The merger between Superior Propane and ICG Propane was first agreed upon in 1998, and then it took two more years to move through the Competition Bureau and all the appeals. I just wanna look at the Superior Propane case today. is another one we can look at another time anyways. So in 1998, Superior Propane purchased ICG Propane, and they were the top two propane distributors in the country. So the Competition Bureau filed to block the merger to the Competition Tribunal because of anti-competitive effects. The tribunal accepted the efficiencies defense argument, and then the Bureau appealed to the Court of Appeals. Court of Appeals sent it back to the tribunal, and the tribunal ruled to allow the merger again. So here's some quotes about this from a 2000 CBC article. The Federal Competition Tribunal has given the green light to Superior Propane's takeover of ICG propane, even though it acknowledges the merger will reduce competition in many markets and eliminate it entirely in others. The Federal Competition Bureau had earlier blocked the merger, citing the 70% share of the Canadian propane market Superior would have if the deal goes through, but the tribunal dismissed the Competition Bureau's concern, saying it agreed with Superior's argument that allowing the merger would make the industry more efficient. The Competition Act allows mergers that reduce competition if they result in efficiencies for the industry that would offset competition concerns. So let's get into these findings a bit more specifically. So these facts came out because the Bureau appealed the Tribunal's ruling to the Court of Appeal. The Tribunal concluded the new firm would have a 70% market share, be dominant, and likely to raise prices by 8% or more. From another paper, somebody had calculated this would be a total of about $43 million per year. The Tribunal also concluded there would be $3 million in deadweight loss and $3 million in other types of inefficiency loss. So there'd be a $6 million loss to the economy from this merger. But the tribunal estimated the merger would save superior propane $29 million per year. And so using the efficiencies defense here, we compare the inefficiencies in the economy, 6 million, to the potential savings for superior of 29 million and determine that this is beneficial for the economy and approve the merger. But the thing is, like, there's no requirement that the company pass on any of these savings to the customers. They acknowledge prices will probably go up. So when I think back about this, it just looks to me that out of this superior propane becomes more profitable because they get increased volume of sales, they get to increase their price and to decrease their expenses. But what do the rest of us get out of this deal? Not much at all. And so the superior propane deal doesn't apply directly to Amherst. I mean, currently, like we have natural gas lines through the town and our biggest propane supplier is probably Irving Could you imagine being a small business or homeowner whose propane cost just increased 8% because of this merger? Aren't you gonna be pissed off about this? I mean, you didn't do anything to deserve this exploitive cost increase. And how are you gonna feel if you complain about this and an economist justifies that the merger is better for the Canadian economy? Aren't you gonna be confused? I mean, we're all part of the Canadian economy, but it's not better for me. Like, who is this better for? Who in the Canadian economy is actually benefiting from this merger? And I've said this in a previous episode as well, but I mean, for me, I don't interact with the Canadian economy. I interact with my local and regional economy. And then my local and regional economy adds up with all the other local and regional economies to build the Canadian economy. And I care a whole lot more about my local economy and myself than a nebulous, quote unquote, Canadian economy. Okay, I want to pause for a second and just talk about the discipline of economics and economists. So, Jim Stanford is an economist and director at the Center for Future Work. So, he wrote the book, Economics for Everyone, in order to open up the discussion around economics. Because for the last 40 years, the discipline of economics has become more involved in all of our government policy decisions, while the same discipline has become more exclusive and limited only to experts. At the start of his book, Stanford raises two key misconceptions we have about economics. The first is that economics is a hard science, like physics or chemistry. When economics is actually a social science, more akin to history, sociology, or political science. You know, economics just is more math than these other subjects, right? Like, so when you compare it, you know, in physics, we know the speed of light, it never changes. In chemistry, we know the atomic mass of an element. That never changes. And because we have these constants, we can make concrete future projections. I mean, when I think about it, this is how we were able to launch the Juno probe in 2011 and that it entered Jupiter's orbit in 2016. To send something that far and make it arrive at the exact moment the planet's close by five years later, you need to know exactly what's gonna happen. But in economics, we don't know exactly what will happen based on any change now, right? You can go look on and read the current debate on rising interest rates to show that we do not have a hard and fast rule for what will happen when we raise interest rates. Same as like the efficiencies defense. We don't have a hard and fast rule that says, if we do this, we will save that much money. It just doesn't exist. So any prediction is based on assumptions and calculations and kind of what's put into them, what information is included and what information is not. The second misconception that Stanford brings up is that economics is non-political and that it's neutral. In this case, the math may be neutral, but all the assumptions that are used in the models or the decisions made from these models are all political. So for example, there's a debate coming out of the US on inflation. Some prominent economists are making the argument that we need to increase unemployment to bring inflation down. So basically the political argument they're making is that I think it's like you've got to increase unemployment to 10%. So they're basically saying six to 7% more of people in the country have to lose their jobs in order to bring inflation down. And when you phrase it that way, that is absolutely a political statement. And when I say political statement, what I mean in this case is that I think it's showing what we value as a country and as a community. And in that statement before, we value bringing inflation down more than people having jobs. But if you're a person who loses their job, you're going to value your job more than inflation. So all of these discussions, all these things are political. And to me, the policy decisions on how we spend money show us our values as a country and as a community. And so to me, the debate over our community values is all political. And that's a good thing. Okay. Slight diversion that we're going to come back to a kind of conversation about economists lots, but let's get back to the superior propane case and the efficiencies defense. So Stanford's first point is that economics is not a hard science. In this case, when the economists argued saying there's going to be $29 million in cost savings, they were arguing hypothetical cost savings. They were making a best guess. We have no idea specifically exactly what savings they will actually achieve. We don't know. And then, like I said before, we're not able to actually go back and see if they achieved those savings because a couple other things with this is the competition bureau is still not allowed to do market studies to find out if those savings occurred and they aren't allowed to go back and review mergers again. So the economists came in, made a prediction, and we have no idea if that prediction came true or not, but we made a decision that impacted all of us based on that prediction. And in this, the prediction that was made in the superior case is only as good as what was included or what was not included. The Competition Tribunal did not include the excess costs to consumers in this calculation, but in a paper titled The Canadian Competition Tribunal Gets It Wrong by Alan Fisher, Robert Landy, and Stephen Ross, they argue that the $43 million, quote unquote, transferred from consumers to the merging firm as a result of higher prices should have been included in the inefficiencies lost to the economy. So if that $43 million was included, there were $6 million of other losses. So it's $49 million in, we'll say, inefficient allocation of whatever economics versus potential savings of $29 million. So if that 43 was included in the calculation, then the merger wouldn't be approved because it's not more beneficial for the whole Canadian economy. Whether you include that or not is also a political decision. Because this decision by the Competition Tribunal is a statement of our values and what is important to Canadians in our communities. So in making this judgment, the tribunal decided that it is more important for some hypothetical or predicted efficiency gains for the Canadian economy, even though regular people, small business owners, small towns will have their costs increase. So again, we are placing the corporate profits over the welfare of individual people, small towns, and small communities. So what can we do about this? Well, first I think we can push to have the efficiencies defense removed completely from the Competition Act when the review comes up this year. When that happens, we're all gonna have to contact our MPs and our senators to let them know that we want this gone. Second, Start to apply Jim Stanford's rules about economics in your life. You know, when experts make broad statements about economic benefits, try to clarify who that actually benefits. Or when economists make predictions with 100% certainty, ask about the assumptions they made, or at least question why are they so certain about this prediction. And finally, register for the Canadian Anti-Monopoly launch event on August 11th at 12 p.m. Eastern. Again, go to antimonopoly.ca slash events. I hope to see you there. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app, and I'll be back in a couple weeks with another show. Take care, everyone. What are you doing in a small town after the movie shows? A few powerful companies. Main Street is struggling. Monopolies killed my hometown.